Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, the podcast for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we have on Dr. Holly Peterson. And this is a really important conversation that we want you all to get comfortable, whether you're walking, you're sitting on the couch, whatever you're doing, really listen to Dr. Peterson and what she has to say. She is going to be talking about risk assessment for women and breast cancer and even hereditary other cancers that may apply. There was so much information that I just wasn't even aware existed and so much genetic history that I didn't even think would apply to breast cancer. And it does. Dr. Peterson is the Director of Medical Breast Services in the Breast Center at Cleveland Clinic, and she's also an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine at Case Western University. So if anyone knows what's going on with risk assessment, it is Dr. Peterson. And just from like the get-go, right, Bridget, she just came out telling us so much information. Wow. Things that I have never heard of and things that I'm so thankful that are being considered the research and the the things that are polygenic risk. Yes. That are, you know, some things aren't available yet, but they are being studied and they're going to come out there. Uh, The MRIs, the the fast MRI, I'm thinking that's what it's called. It's in the podcast. It's the abbreviated MRI. 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 Yes. Um, I was so thankful to hear that because I, I become so frustrated because I feel like women's health is just ignored. Like you said, it's the last last one in line. And it drives me crazy. Uh, And and the number of times that we try and try to talk to someone about it, and either we're ignored or like we've said, people or physicians just aren't educated when it comes to lots of aspects of women's health. And this just actually was very comforting to hear from her today, because I know that there's things being done, that there's studies being done, that there's options available to women. And it just helped me feel a little bit better about what's happening in women's health. Absolutely. Finding these women like Dr. Peterson, like Dr. Larkin, who they know and they work together a lot of times at the forefront of the medical findings for women, it just makes you feel a little more secure that we aren't last on the totem pole for possible improvements in our in women's health. And we talk a lot about them, not just about BRCA, but we talk about genetic testing and women who might be eligible for medications and why they're afraid to take them like tamoxifen, but that actually there aren't as many side effects as you think it is. So really this conversation from the get-go is just a wealth of information and we're going to get started on it. But first, I just want to remind you guys that starting November 7th, our gift guide is going to be out for midlife women. It's going to be available on all of our platforms. We are going to have promo codes. We are going to be naming some of the most unique and exciting gifts for the holidays. So when your family asks you, what do I want for the, what do you want for the holidays? You're going to have an answer to that question this year. And also starting November 16th is our 12 days of holiday giveaways where we are going to be giving away every other day, a phenomenal gift to one lucky winner that is going to make a great holiday gift for themselves or someone they love. But I think whoever wins is going to keep it for themselves. And we're excited to be sharing who's on the list, what is going to be done for each day to enter and the sponsors that we're working with because we love them all. 
So did I forget anything about that, Bridget? I think you're good. I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited about all the products and the promo codes and everything we have available. Every year, Bridget and I say we really wish we could enter the giveaway because we want the stuff that you guys are going to end up winning. So with that being said, we are going to let Dr. Holly Peterson take over the conversation with her incredible interview. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, we have a very important conversation with a very important guest, Dr. Holly Peterson. And Dr. Peterson is Director of Medical Breast Services in the Breast Center at Cleveland Clinic, along with being an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Cleveland Learner College of Medicine at Case Western University. Welcome, Dr. Peterson. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Well, we appreciate it. We know you're very busy, so we appreciate your time. It's a really important conversation that we want to have today about the risk assessment for breast cancer for women. A lot of women, including you know who you are that is listening, are afraid to find out their risk factors, afraid to even know that they have any. I mean, it's hard enough to get a woman to do a breast exam or go for a mammogram, but to actually check their genetic risks. So that's something that that's even a step further. So can you talk a little bit about what you do as far as risk assessment goes? Sure. You know, I think that a lot of the women who listen to this program are in midlife. And that's the time at which we often become the most concerned about breast cancer. In fact, the average age of breast cancer in this country is about 62. But what a lot of women don't know is that if you have a hereditary cancer syndrome, cancers can start at the age of 30. And we would start screening at age 25. And so while we are concerned more now, what we need to move toward is risk assessment at a much earlier age. How would that be done, risk assessment at an earlier age? Yeah. So the American College of Radiology has suggested that all women and particularly Black women who get breast cancer earlier and Ashkenazi women who have a higher incidence of carrying BRCA mutations, but all women should have a risk assessment done at least by the age of 30. And what that looks like is really taking a careful family history, first, second, and third degree relatives, and reporting it to your healthcare provider. First, second, third degree would like third degree, who would that be? An example of a third degree? You know, everybody usually focuses on their mother's side of the family, but DNA comes from both sides. And so you really want to ask about not only your maternal side, mother, maternal aunts, maternal grandmother, but the father's side. And be sure to go all the way out to cousins and great aunts, great, you know, if you can get that kind of information, it's so important. And the red flags that may signal that there's a hereditary problem in the family are usually pretty clear. You know, you're going to see a lot of cancer and you're going to see cancer at earlier ages. Breast cancer under the age of 50. A form of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer is associated with a very high likelihood of finding a genetic mutation. Ovarian cancer, which is otherwise rare, 
pancreatic cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, women who have breast cancer on both sides shouldn't be happening. Male breast cancer is a red flag. And of course, if there's a known mutation in the family, you, you, know, you know that you're at risk for carrying it. Um, and if anybody anywhere close to you meets any of those criteria, you likely would be eligible for testing. In fact, one in four women who just walk through uh, the door of an OBGYN's office are eligible for genetic testing. Really? So if you had an aunt or a cousin that was diagnosed younger with breast cancer, for example, my mother's sister, got breast cancer in her 40s. Would that mean that I'm, I would fall within one of those four women that would qualify for genetic testing? That's exactly right. And the best person to test would be your aunt because she would be the most likely to show a problem if it were there. That's what a lot of people think, well, why can't I be tested? And I'll say, well, you have three sisters. So your mom is the one who had breast cancer. If she tests and has an abnormality, you all can be checked. And if she doesn't have an abnormality, no one needs to be checked. And so it's really important to focus on trying to test the best person, meaning the one who had the cancer at the early age. But if they're unavailable or unwilling to test, then someone like you could definitely have genetic testing and it would be paid for by insurance. That's really important for our listeners to hear because I don't think they realize that it would be number one, covered by insurance and two, that it's first, second, third, you know, relationship mm -hmm. out. What would that genetic testing involve? Just blood test? Yeah, so usually it's a meeting with a genetic counselor, which nowadays is often done virtually, and either a blood or a saliva test to evaluate your DNA for changes. And what we're looking for in you know, genetic testing are DNA changes in either what we call highly penetrant or moderately penetrant genes. What we typically do are these multi-gene panels that include not only a number of genes for breast cancer, but genes that are related to other hereditary syndromes involving the ovary, the colon, the thyroid. It really is sort of a pan-cancer panel. And uh, it's hard to counsel people up front because the number of situations that can result from those different genes that are tested for, the situations are very wide. People will say, well, what would I do differently if I were to test? That would depend on what gene might be identified or if no gene was identified, what the plan would be next. I had that Ancestry.com, or it was 23andMe. Okay. And I had the test done. It did not come up showing anything for BRCA1 or BRCA2. But I was curious how reliable that is. It does say 
go ahead, check further. You know, we're not the end all be all of this, but how reliable are those? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So direct to consumer genetic testing is booming. Top 10 holiday gift list. You know, everybody wants to know their ancestry. Um, but at the bottom, you can check that box to get the uh, additional health information piece. Um, I, if I might ask, were you aware when you filled out the sheet that the only genes that they're testing for are the three founder mutations that are almost exclusively found in the Ashkenazi community? I was not, no. <laughs> yes, this is not made clear on the form, in my opinion. And um, this is big business. They are making a lot of money off of this testing. And most people uh, don't realize that there are thousands of BRCA genes uh, at BRCA gene mutations, and all they're testing for are the three common founder mutations seen in the Jewish population that are present in about 0.06% of the non-Jewish population. So it's essentially meaningless for non-Jewish people to undergo that test, and nobody knows that. And so even if you are of Ashkenazi descent, the test can sometimes be inaccurate. It's a pretty good screen. It's a SNP-based test. It's not full gene sequencing. And the FDA actually requires as part of its language that any test that turns positive be validated in a clinical lab. So Really, there are two problems with the 23andMe genetic testing. One is a positive result, and two is a negative result. <laughs> and with a negative result, this is what really scares me, is that women think, I'm okay, I had genetic testing. It doesn't matter that my mom and my aunt had breast cancer I had negative genetic testing and I don't need to worry. Well, first of all, only about 10 to 15% of, of breast cancers are genetic anyway. And second of all, you have hardly tested for anything with those tests. You know where I think those tests are the most exciting and interesting really are for adoptees to find long lost relatives. Um, you know, otherwise they're fun, they're recreational, um, but they're not very useful in, in our space. Um, and there are direct to consumer, next generation, clinical grade sequencing panels um, and I can't really name names, but uh, there are companies that put out real stuff and you can have a real multi-gene cancer panel with the availability of a genetic counselor on the back end to help you understand the results and direct to consumer, but real. Um, the other thing that people don't know about the, the uh, direct to consumer stuff is that what can sometimes happen, and I say sometimes because I'm being kind, 
is that um, the your your clinical information is collected. So they have your family history, then they have your DNA, and then they sell it. They sell it to other companies to do research on, and you're not even aware of that. So did, was there a clause that you noted that where you signed off on the I, there, I don't recall if there was one about selling it, but I do know that I was, you know, made aware that it could be used, you know, if somebody was a criminal in my family and they wanted to catch them through, oh, okay. yeah, through the, I, I do know that was made aware. It was, it's been about three years, but what is another thing that I started finding, this isn't that reliable is they change that you'll see your heritage is one place and then the percentage changes. So I'm like, okay, this is changing. I still, this does not allow me to skip my mammograms and skip my yearly GYN visits. And now that's me though. That's not everybody. You know, some people may not feel that that leads to a good question, Bridget. There are a lot of people who don't want to take these tests. Do you see that in your practice? Well, so really, I look at it in like an upside down triangle. Up top is like stuff we all should do. We should all achieve and maintain our ideal body weight, exercise and limit alcohol consumption. Those are the big lifestyle things that we can all do. Then the next tier is mammography. And that's been such a you know, confusing area. Just when we got to the point where breast awareness meant, you know, examine yourself and get a mammogram starting at 40, then the whole world went haywire and people are advising against self-exam. I mean, really, that's just ridiculous. Um, In my opinion, so many women find their own breast lumps. Um, And In terms of the mammography debate, there has been no new data in that space. The data is solid, and what it shows is that there's a 20 to 40% mortality reduction in all age groups uh, across the board, you know, whether you're 40 or 55 or 60 or whatever age they're, you know, they're referring to. And the decisions that are made around when you start screening and how often you screen are not based on new medical data, but on decisions around health policy. And I think that we need to be aware of that. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network, of which we are a member, and the American College of Radiology still recommend annual screening mammograms starting at 40 and continuing along as long as you're healthy. Um, And that hasn't changed. Um, So that's mammography, and that's a whole separate topic. But then we deal with who qualifies for MRI screening and then who should consider preventive medication and who should be seen by a genetic counselor to consider genetic testing 
And finally, who should consider risk-reducing surgery if they're at the highest levels of risk? So all of those are kind of a topic in and of themselves, but let's go down to the bottom where we talked about, you know, family history and genetic testing. What I found is that um, the women from the highest risk families are often least likely to come forward because they're the most afraid. Um, it really, the women who kind of don't have a lot of risk factors are gung-ho to sign up for the 23andMe and check the box and, you know, but a woman who lost her mom when she was eight, you know, is, uh, has spent a lot of time healing from that. And it's very hard for her to go back. It's very hard for her to come forward. And many healthcare providers don't ask those questions. So what I found is that if a young woman has breast cancer in the family and passes away, the family has to heal and they move on. And conversely, if they have breast cancer and they recover, the family has to heal and move on. And so the, the patients at the highest risk are often the least likely to ask about genetics. And the other part of it is that they feel like if I go in, I'm going to be told that I have to have mastectomies. And that is not the case. You may be told that we recommend ovarian removal, tube and ovary removal, because we can't screen for ovarian cancer, but it's always a woman's choice if she wants to be screened more carefully with the MRI alternating with a three-dimensional mammogram, perhaps with the addition of preventive medication, or have the risk-reducing surgery. So many women are afraid they'll be told that they have to have surgery, and that's another barrier, and it's absolutely not the case. It's, it's almost really, like a PTSD, that a, a trauma, like dealing with the trauma that they went through with their family member. Now, that's really important yeah. for our listeners to hear, that they are not going to be just shuffled into an operating room having their breasts removed and their, you know, reproductive parts removed as, as well. Um, question on those layers, actually really a two-part. How accurate is the 3D mammogram versus a regular mammogram? And who, who should look for the preventative treatments and what are they? Sure. So... Um, just to finish up on that other piece with the um, with the emotional component, I think that you know I can spit off a hundred statistics, but I didn't live that life and grow up without family members, and so much of it. Uh, we need to really recognize the emotional component. That uh, that exists in this in this particular um, medical space, and um, and try as patients to separate, you know, our feelings from you know what what we might want to consider. It's very very difficult. So 
What about screening and what about prevention? If you screen a thousand women with digital mammography, which is the very low dose non-3D mammogram, you're going to detect about four breast cancers per thousand women screened. The three-dimensional mammogram or digital breast tomosynthesis, as we call it, has a 25 to 40% improved breast cancer detection with 15% fewer callbacks. But if you're a mathematician, what that comes out to is 1.5 additional breast cancers per thousand women screened. Whole breast ultrasound, which is not really recommended because there are so many false positives, will give you four additional breast cancers per thousand women screened. But MRI, kind of the gold standard, is 18 to 25 additional breast cancers per thousand women screened. We are under detecting breast cancer, not over detecting breast cancer. This whole concept of over diagnosis is something I really honestly don't understand very well. You know, it, we don't see breast cancers that otherwise would not have caused any problems. You know, we don't see breast cancers regress. Um, and it really, I think, is something you'd want to know about if you had one. So the full sequence breast MRI is reserved for highly, uh, for, for very high risk patients. But there's a new technology out called abbreviated MRI or fast MRI, which is available at many institutions. And if it's not available in your area, I would go outside of your area to find it if you have dense breast tissue and want additional screening. We don't have it at Cleveland Clinic, but I refer my patients to University Hospital across the street because they offer it for $250 out of pocket. And for women with dense breast tissue, I believe that's the way to go. And maybe they don't want to do it every year if they're not at increased risk, maybe every three years. But um, that's going to be the way of the future, in my opinion, is the fast MRI for dense breast tissue. And there was a recent meta-analysis that showed that it's really uh, demonstrating the same sensitivity and specificity as full-sequence MRI in picking up breast cancers. So screening, I would go with 3D if you're dense and consideration of fast MRI if you can find it. Um, if you're high risk, 3D alternating with the full sequence MRI. And then what about preventive medication? So it's clear when you have a very compelling family history, you know, that you might want to consider preventive medication and talk to your provider about the pros and cons. Tamoxifen is the only medication that can be given in the premenopausal setting. But what women don't realize is that in healthy premenopausal women, there are no increased risks of serious side effects. And people are afraid of blood clots, uterine cancer, early development of cataracts. In the studies that have been performed, 
those were seen at an increased frequency in postmenopausal women. 1% risk of blood clot, 1% to 3% risk of endometrial cancer, and a slight increased risk of cataract formation. But in premenopausal women, those were not seen at any increased risk. There can be hot flashes and night sweats and some, sometimes some vaginal discharge. And then in the postmenopausal setting, there are other agents that can be used. So family history is one group of people that really should be targeted. Another group are people with atypical hyperplasia or lobular carcinoma in situ that are atypical benign breast biopsy things that show up about 10% of the time on breast biopsies. And when you have one of those, usually your surgeon will make you aware that that puts you at increased risk and something you might consider as medication to reduce your risk. Those, that's really amazing things that I'd never heard of because there's, I know so many people that I grew up with that have been diagnosed with breast cancer. And there's so many different types that they are diagnosed with. But something amazing or something really interesting, Colleen and I have interviewed different women. And one woman in particular, um, Leslie Ferris Yeager, Yeager um, she wrote a book that she had the mammogram, she had the ultrasound nothing showed up and her doctor just wanted to do a bone scan, just a base baseline bone scan, just said you're 50 years old just to see if you increase osteoporosis and it showed up there. Is, is that something that you hear about uh, that people no, go? That's very you know, unusual. Unusual. Very, very okay. Unusual. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Would, that would be, that would be unusual. Okay. But you mentioned the different types of breast yes. cancer and um, triple negative breast cancer is something that you hear a lot about that's more common in black women than in white women and it occurs earlier it's more aggressive it's more difficult to treat the, the only two things that you can do to reduce your risk of triple negative breast cancer are to be thin and to breastfeed. These medications don't reduce the risk of estrogen negative breast cancers like the triple negative breast cancer. But uh, I did just want to mention that since you mentioned the different types and then the different genes are associated with different types. And so certain genes can predispose really primarily to the estrogen-positive breast cancers and certain genes to the estrogen-negative breast cancers. And I wonder if that woman might have had, there's one particular type of breast cancer, and this brings up an important point, is that lobular breast cancer which is associated with a certain gene called CDH1, which is not very common, but it's important if it runs in your family. But lobular breast cancer, which accounts for 15% of all breast cancers, can hide on the mammogram and can even hide sometimes on the ultrasound. So if you feel a lump, don't stop until you're satisfied with your workup. Be your own advocate because um, 
if a lump is a lump and needs to be evaluated, if it's sort of lumpy tissue, that's one thing. But if you can feel a lump that's there, don't stop with, oh, your mammogram is fine or, oh, you're too young or, you know, this or that, because um, there lumps can or cancers can hide in dense tissue and lobular cancers can sometimes just be difficult to detect. So if your particular doctor doesn't want to move further or doesn't recommend it, find another doctor that will or just keep pushing. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know what? Pushing uh, pushing one that doesn't listen to you usually doesn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I haven't found that to be very effective myself. So usually I'll say, you know what? Thank you very much, and I'll, I'll uh, get another opinion. Uh, you know, don't stop. Okay, because um, we we have people that come and and they told their doctor about this a while back and, and, you know, we're told, Oh, it's probably just a cyst or this or that. You, you, you have to have these things evaluated. And, and a lot of women know in their gut when something's wrong, you know, they really do. And I think that that's what Leslie was saying. She now has started a foundation. Um, My density matters. Okay. Breast density. And that's another important piece of information that a lot of women don't even know. So that has now become a federal law that all women be notified about their breast density. And that's important because in your 30s, 70% of women are mammographically dense. In your, after the age of 40, almost 50% of all women are mammographically dense. And density not only plays into hiding things, but it's an independent risk factor for the development of breast cancer. Those with the highest degree of density, extremely dense, which only account for 10% of women, are four times as likely as those with the lowest degree of density to get breast cancer. And some of our risk models now are incorporating breast density, which is really important. And the other thing that's gonna be coming upon the scene, which is super exciting, is something called the polygenic risk score. And that's a genomic test. So there's the the big bad genes, the BRCA1 and BRCA2. Then there's the moderate risk genes like CHECK2 and ATM. Then there's over 300 itty-bitty genes called SNPs. And they confer very small levels of risk individually, but in combination can affect your risk whether you carry a genetic mutation or whether you don't. And that is going to become available commercially in short order and help to stratify your risk, not through a mathematical model where we just enter in your age, your first birth, your height and weight. We're going to use your own genomic information looking at these SNPs to determine uh, your level of risk. And, and I just think that that's probably the most exciting thing since panel testing came out in 2013. I mean, this is really gonna change 
you know, change the world in terms of risk assessment. We may be able to identify low-risk women for the first time. We'll be able to help women who are diagnosed make decisions about contralateral mastectomy because they'll know even if their big bad genes are negative that they have a high or low polygenic risk score, which may predict the risk of developing a breast cancer on the other side. Women who have family history, you get these little snips from both your mom and your dad. Like your SNP combination may be totally different from your sister's. So let's say mom had breast cancer and there's three daughters, they all have different combinations of SNPs and are at different risk. And so that's going to be a whole new layer of substratification. And we are going to be embarking on a study with the Mayo Clinic called Genre 2, G-E-N-R-E 2. And it asks the question, if you knew your polygenic risk score and knew whether your risk was higher or lower than what we estimate with our mathematical models, would that influence your, uh, your decision to consider preventive medication? Well, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. I have patients, you know, just anticipating eagerly this, uh, this possibility to participate in this trial because, of course, they want to know what their predisposition is. And it's a piece of risk information. It's not the entire, you know, it answer. Their family history is, of course, probably the most important thing. Their breast density ranks way up there and is underappreciated. But this is an important piece of risk information that, uh, that will soon become available. It's in the research setting now and is moving toward the clinical, clinical world. That is so exciting because I yeah, always feel yeah. like women's health in general I always felt like it doesn't get as much attention and that it's on the back burner. But just to hear that these things are happening really just leaves me with a better feeling. It's a cool topic. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> nice play on words there, yes. Dr. Peterson. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about when you were explaining these kind of forward thinking process that are going to be available for women is that doctors can barely get us through menopause. A lot of them aren't even you know, educated properly on menopause. What happens if a woman goes into a doctor who really isn't, hasn't learned the process and what to offer? Where can they go to find out this information? I know. Educating providers, not only about these topics, but how to communicate risk information to patients is really one of the big gaps. And you you really hit the nail right on the head. You know, you sign up for a visit with a doctor, even a women's health doctor, and there are gaps in knowledge. There are gaps in, in helping you to understand. And um, I don't know what the right answer is. You know, I... Um, Personally, that's one of my passions altogether is to educate other providers in national forums like 
the American College of OBGYN, ACP, American College of Physicians, family practice. I've been invited to different organizations to try to help primary care providers understand this information. But I think that there's also really a role for taking it to the next level in helping providers communicate the information. Right. And, and that's actually a different topic than even knowing the information is to help a woman make, you know, help her make her own plan based on the whole picture. Because it's not even just about your family history or your age or how you're doing with menopause. Do you have migraine with aura? Do you smoke? Are you overweight? You know, there, there's all sorts of factors that play into these decisions. And, you know, um, you really have to put it all together. And there, there are not a lot of providers that have that kind of training. We're working on actually an online fellowship for women's health providers um, that I'm doing with uh, Dr. Sandia Pruthi from the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Ruth Heisey from Women's College in Toronto. Um, and uh, we're putting together a, you know, a curriculum uh, for, for women's health providers. And I help to train people out of the Cleveland Clinic, but that's typically one at a time. Um, and so we just do all we can to, to get the word out, but it's tough. You're, you're absolutely, and a, a general patient, how are they possibly to know, you know, how to um, find the right person? I do a lot of telehealth, but I'm only uh, licensed in California and Florida. And I wish they would open that up, you know, so that people would have access just to a, telemedicine consult, you know, about their risk, um, because there, there aren't that many people, frankly, who, you know, who focus exclusively on risk. And that's really kind of, you know, what, what I do, but a busy practitioner is doing a million things in eight minutes, you know, so it's tough. It really creates a problem for so many. And, and we talk to a lot of doctors and experts that say, I would love to spend 40 minutes talking to a patient and getting their history. I simply can't do that because the insurance right. companies are requiring a certain number of people to see every day. And it just seems like women are least or like the last in the line. Well, and you know, not only do you not have time, but then they require that you do all sorts of changes to your note and then they audit your notes and tell you, you know, and, and so it's, it's tiresome. You know, you, you, we went into medicine to help people, to talk to people, to spend time with people. And we're spending so much time on the computer and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot more focus needs to be on women's health. I do a lot with Lisa Larkin and Ms. Medicine and helping, you know, um, enhance the education of women's health providers with her. And she's just a ball of fire. She's a lot of fun. And she has a great network of women who care about women. And so, um, you know, it's hard. It's really, but 
you can't fault the general practitioner for not trying, you know, they are trying. And I love this new law, the CARE Act. I don't know if you're familiar with that, where, Mm -hmm. where all of your results are just automatically um, released to my chart without an explanation from your provider. Um, to, to combat information blocking by physicians. I mean, (laughs) like, it's like, we're not trying to block. I mean, maybe there are situations, I don't know, but I would prefer to wait till the end of the day and talk to you about something concerning that I found on your study, rather than having it just fly into your you know, your my chart, and then you're going, you know, what do I do? You know, I people don't understand that that it takes time and in and it may not happen till eight o'clock tonight, but you know, it's better to talk to me than it is to have it, you know, just come out. And those density reports are scaring people because they've gotten their mammogram reports all these years and now it says and you're really dense and you should talk to your healthcare provider about it, you know, and people don't realize density is really common and it, it's, it's a piece. It's a piece of the, of the puzzle that you need to put together with your other risk factors, but it is something to talk about. And it is something to look at your options for supplemental screening with. Well, I agree with you. Sometimes you get the test results immediately on your, my chart and you don't even understand you just think, oh, this can't be good because it says X, Y, and Z with no explanation. So it's, that definitely doesn't help your job at all when you get panic phone calls from patients saying, what does this mean when you were getting ready to call well, them a few hours and later? And it's written for other healthcare providers. It's not written for patient consumption, really. You know, the wording is descriptive and um, it the radiologist or the pathologist will describe everything they see in words that we know where to look, you know, in terms of the importance or the interpretation. It's not meant for a patient to read the report and they can be very frightening. And then it makes women even more afraid of the whole thing. And then they've sent three my chart messages out to you and their primary and their OBGYN saying, what does this mean? And, you know, you just feel so bad. I just, I just think that was a bad move, but that's just my own personal opinion. I I wasn't asked. (laughs) (laughs) One question and one topic leads to another question and another topic. It's really amazing. And Bridget and I could keep you here all day, but I I know you're a busy woman. (laughs) Don't tempt us. We have had Dr. Larkin on the show. She's wonderful. We adore her. She's actually coming on. We're doing a series on menopause and aging on the Revel platform for women over 40. She's going to be coming on to talk about surgical menopause and women's health. So we are excited to have that conversation with her. But it's getting the word out with experts like yourself, like Dr. Larkin, who are saying, ask the questions, be your own advocate. There's stuff out there you don't know about. So if by this conversation, one woman knows to go get an abbreviated MRI, which I already raised my hand, I'm going to find out where the nearest one is in Nashville. 
that's important. We're spreading the word. So thank you so much for your time. We truly appreciate oh, it. Sure. You, you were a pleasure to speak with. And I really hope that it was helpful for people. And, and, you know, I'm happy to come back anytime. So thank you very thank much. You and so we will much. take, we have that mm-hmm. on tape. We will take you up. On it. <laughs> okay. All thank right. you for your time. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson, for being on our show today. I mean, like Colleen and I said, this was so much valuable information. I am so relieved and especially the risk assessment for breast cancer. It is so important. I know so many women that have had breast cancer. I mean, it's too many, you know, the older we get, the more it's going to be, but I can't believe the number of classmates I've had and the number of women I've worked with, the number of people I love that have had breast cancer. And it is just so important to get this word out, to try to find out what the risk factors are and what to do about it. I'm just so grateful for this information. And make sure to also check out revel.com. It's a platform for women over 40. And Bridget and I are doing a series on menopause and positive aging over on the platform. And we mentioned that Dr. Lisa Larkin is a friend of Dr. Peterson's and she will actually be doing our December series on surgical menopause and other factors. So it's an important topic. We are trying to get the word out with so many amazing women. If you learned a lot today, share it with other women because it's only through these conversations that knowledge can grow and knowledge is power when it comes to your health. Make sure to follow us on all forms of social media because we're there, we're here, there and everywhere. And if you want to make sure you're on our Instagram, Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, because that's where you're going to get the most information on our ten, our 12 days of holiday giveaways and on the gift guide that's coming out. And guys, you don't want to miss those. They are like Bridget and I are just so excited. We're like kids. It's like Christmas for us. Yeah. So ha- have a great day, guys. We will talk to you soon. Bye.